excited to get to today's passage of scripture. And um, uh, I, I was going to bring the dry erase board over here, but let me just, instead of taking the time to do that, just picture in your mind, if you will, um, me writing on the dry erase board. And um, a very important concept that actually I was talking about with Ari on the way over here this morning for rehearsal. Uh, I was saying about, you know, I really love this passage and I really love one of the, the teachings or the doctrines in this passage. And I said it, it actually falls kind of in terms of the doctrine of Christian doctrine falls under the umbrella of what's called Christology. So it's basically the study about Jesus and the work of Jesus Christ. And I said that there's there's several states. Okay, now this wasn't included in the sermon. I'm adding this because I, I realized this actually would be kind of helpful to understanding this passage. So if you could picture the states of Christ. Okay, this is a subheading under the, the doctrine of Christ, and it's the states of Christ, the states of his ministry. One, the first state would be his pre-incarnate glory. Okay? Incarnate means he became flesh. He took on a human. Uh, took on human flesh. Um, Jesus Christ, the Christ, the eternal Son of God, existed before he became a man in human history as Jesus. And so there is the pre-incarnate state of Christ. And we saw that a little bit last week with our scripture passage where um, Jesus is praying in his high priestly prayer. He says, now, Father, give me the glory, the glory that we had, that I had with you, before the world was created. Clear verse about the pre-incarnate state of Christ. But then there's the state of humiliation, which is being born of a virgin, being born in a basically a, a, an animal barn, an attachment to the house where the animals would be born, taking on human flesh. Jesus living the human experience as both fully God and fully man very important. This is a very important doctrine. And so this is described as the humiliation of Christ, that he became a human person. He got tired. He got hungry. So there's the humiliation of Christ, and that humiliation kind of uh, reaches its bottom with his arrest, his crucifixion, and his burial. Jesus being buried in the heart of the earth for three days. That's one of the states of Christ. But then the other state of Christ is, is his, that was kind of his humiliation. And this is his exaltation, which begins with his resurrection from the grave. With a new and glorified body. And he appears to all of the apostles and to many more, hundreds it tells us. So there's his pre-incarnate glory, his humiliation, his exaltation, which leads to his ascension from this earth into the heavenly places. Acts 1 records that for us. And then there's a couple of other states, too. There's his state of glorification, seated at the right hand of the Father, and... The last state, or let me say it from our perspective, the present state is one that isn't talked about very much. You might be familiar with, oh yeah, Jesus Christ was pre-incarnate, and yes, he was humbled, and then yes, he was exalted, and now he's ascended on high. But uh, the scriptures tell us that 
there in heaven, Jesus Christ is in the state of what's called his session. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and his ministry is ongoing there as one of intercession for his people. Okay? Let me give you a couple of scripture verses uh, for this. Romans 8, 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised. Who is? So there's two of the, the states, right? His, uh, his humiliation and then his exaltation. And then who is at the right hand and who indeed is interceding for us right now? Or as Hebrews 7, consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them right now from our perspective in our experience jesus right now is interceding for you at the right hand of the father or this again in hebrews for christ has entered into the holy places made with hands uh not into excuse me christ has not entered into holy places made with hands which are copies of the true things meaning the earthly temple in jerusalem but he's entered into heaven itself. The one that the earthly temple was a copy of. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And lastly, 1 John, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, the parakletos, which Jesus said the paraclete, the advocate is coming for, I'm going to send him to you. That's the Holy Spirit. But Jesus himself is also called the advocate, and he is advocating, he is interceding, he is bringing counsel for us with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Isn't that amazing? This is a very important aspect of Jesus' ministry. All of those states that I described are all parts of his work of redemption. And the one we often don't think about is his session, seating at the right hand of the Father, and his intercession, interceding for believers even now. How does that change in your thinking to know that the crucified, dead, and buried, and yet resurrected and exalted Son of God is interceding, praying for you? This prayer that we've looked at last week and we'll look at today is called the High Priestly Prayer. This is John chapter 17. And it's a high priestly prayer. It's called that because it's reminiscent to what the high priests would do in interceding and praying on behalf of, this, uh, on behalf of the people. And Jesus is the high priest who's about to offer the ultimate sacrifice, which is the shedding of his blood, and so, and then that's about ready to take place in just a couple of minutes. Or excuse me, just a couple of moments he's going to be seized and arrested. So this prayer that we're going to read is, a, is sort of a peek behind the veil. While Jesus was on his earth with his disciples, he gave this prayer right before we, he was about to be arrested and tried and crucified. And this is the intercession he is making. And I think that this is a picture of the intercession. I think he gives for his disciples 
the, uh, a picture of the intercession that he is making right now in heaven. I mentioned a, a guy named uh, Wilhelmus Abrakel, and I love him because of his writings, not just because his name's cool to say. Um, he says this about Christ and his session. He says, for men to be saved, it was not sufficient that by his suffering, death, and holiness, he merited salvation, but it was also necessary that by means of his intercession, he would apply salvation. Okay? Saying it's, it's not just sufficient that he's merited the salvation, he has to take that salvation that he's accomplished and now apply it to his people, and that he does by intercession. And so we're going to be looking at this prayer. Let me read this prayer, and then we're going to look at this prayer in three different parts. The who he is praying for, why he is praying, and what he prays for. So I invite you to turn with me to John 17, beginning in verse 6 through 19. And actually, let me begin with verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do and now. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth, that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves." I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. This is the reading of God's word. And we say, 
Thanks be to God. And God, not only do we thank you for your word, but we turn to you knowing that your word is breathed out by you, that the authors of scripture were carried along by the spirit of God. And Father, we'd ask that we, by the spirit, would be illuminated to understand what this passage means for us that you would remove the blinders from our eyes and from our hearts that we would see and understand and that we would know deeper the glory that you have manifested in your son Jesus on our behalf. And we pray that you would apply these truths to our hearts. We ask this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. So verses 1 through 5, Jesus is praying for himself. Verses 6 through 19, Jesus is now praying for his people. And we'll look at this in three parts. First, who Jesus is praying for. And again, sorry, we had a handout with uh, the blanks here. But if you have a piece of paper and can take some notes, I encourage you to do that. Verses 6 through 10, Jesus kind of gives a recap here or specifics about who it is he's praying for. And he's praying for his people. Those that were given to him from the Father that we looked at and we saw last week, if you were here. Notice verse 6. For I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Okay. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they kept your word. Okay. This is referring to this particular people of God. Other passages of Scripture refers to them as the, the elect of God. And just to remind ourselves of what happened here last week, this concept of the covenant of redemption, this pact or this agreement between the Father and the Son from before the world began. Notice verse 2. Since you have given him, Jesus is saying this, to the Father, you have given him, me the Son, he's saying, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So there's an agreement between the Father and the Son. The Father sends the Son on the mission to uh, redeem the elect. The Son accomplishes that work in full obedience. We saw this all through John's Gospel, that uh, I came to do the will of the Father. And the Son accomplishes that work. Then the Father rewards the Son for accomplishing that work by giving him a people. And the Son's people then Jesus is not only given the people, he's also given eternal life to give to the people. And so Jesus now receives this people that were the fathers and now his, his own possession, and he now gifts them with eternal life. You see this in a couple of places. John, notice, skip down to verse 11, where Jesus says, keep them in your name, which you have given me. And in verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. And just a reminder of a couple of passages. We've seen this before in John, John chapter 6, where uh, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Also in chapter 6, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Or John chapter 10, verse 29, My Father who has given them, and in this context he was talking about the sheep, He's referring to the sheep. 
who has given them his sheep to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. So this is the particular group of people. He's praying for them. And just as a reminder, I think I mentioned this last week, we often think that Jesus is the gift of the Father to us, and that is true. But when in the context of the covenant of redemption, we need to remember that we are the reward to Jesus from the Father for his accomplishment of that work. That, that the gift, we are given a gift of eternal life from Jesus, but we, the people that have eternal life, are a gift to Jesus from the Father. That's amazing, isn't it? So Jesus is praying for this particular people. So just to kind of recap that. And uh, he is praying for his people. So notice the kind of elect language, the predestination kind of language here. But notice this as well. He prays for those who have heard his word, received it, and believed in his name. Notice verses 6 and 8. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Okay. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And then he says this, and you and they have kept your word. Some translations might have obey. It's, it's the similar idea. They, they have obeyed your word. Or verse 8, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and uh, have come to know the truth that I came from you and have believed that you sent me. So these earlier verses kind of speak about the sovereignty of God and election with that covenant of redemption. But here it's it's held in tension with this idea of the reality of, of actual human responsibility. The people, notice the terms here too in what I just read in 6 and 8. Uh, notice the word and words. This is shorthand for this message about the kingdom that he indeed is the Christ. Even though they didn't understand the full picture uh, quite yet that he was going to have to suffer and die. They're going to find that out in very short order. But Jesus here at this point with what they've been given, they understand that he, in fact, is the Messiah. We just saw that at the end of chapter 16, right? Now we know that you know all things and no one needs to question you. And this is why we believe that you came from God. Or similarly, like Martha said to Jesus uh, in John chapter 11 with the raising of Lazarus. And Jesus says, do you believe? And she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Or also in chapter 6, when many of the disciples were turning away because of the harsh words that Jesus was saying, unless you eat eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And his disciples started to, uh, the larger group of disciples started to leave him and turn his back. And he, Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, do you want to go his way as, as well? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So notice the tension that's here He's, dry, he's describing they truly hear. They genuinely believe. They genuinely receive this message in, in fulfillment of how John begins his gospel. That he came to his own, his own people did not receive him. But to, to those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. 
So there's two, two truths. Here's what I'm getting at in that. There's two truths. There's the fact that they were elect from the foundation of the earth. Verses 2, 5, and 6. But also true is the fact that their hearing was real hearing. Their receiving of Christ was truly receiving Christ. Their believing was real believing. Their faith was real faith. These two things are not contradictory. Hard to understand? Sure. A, 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 pair, a difficult uh, thing to understand? Sure. A mysterious thing? Sure. But they're not contradictory, according to the scriptures. D.A. Carson puts it this way. Despite the predestinary, uh, predestinatory note just sounded, it must be thought that the disciples were mere robots or puppets. You ever heard this described? You know, people reject the idea of, of election and predestination and goes, well, we're just a bunch of robots then we don't actually believe. The scriptures do not teach that. It must not be thought that the disciples are mere robots or puppets. The belief, um, they believe, they hear, they obey, and their belief is their belief. Their hearing is their hearing, and the obeying is their, is their obeying. It is not easy to see how God's unconditional sovereignty, even in salvation, and man's free agency as creatures coexist, but coexist they do, according to the scriptures. So who Jesus is praying for, he's praying for the elect from the foundation of the world, and those to whom received, heard the message and received that message. And notice, by the way, Jesus adds this little comment here that he's not praying for the world. Doesn't mean we're not to understand that he doesn't have care for the world or concern for the world. It's just saying that right now he's praying for the believers. He's praying for those who have received and believed in his name and those to whom he has been given as a gift from the Father. He will be praying about the world later verses 20 through 26 lord willing we'll get to that next week but here jesus is praying for that people so that's number one jesus is praying uh, who jesus is praying for he's praying for his people those who've come to believe in him now why just briefly why is he praying we see this at the beginning of verse 11 he's praying for them because he's about ready to depart and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. So Jesus' intercession for them, uh, behind that is the idea that he is no longer here. He's coming to you. He's coming to the Father. He's going to be seated at the right hand of the Father. And yet they remain in the world. Therefore, his prayer the reason why he is praying, it's necessary for him to pray because he is leaving them. And as I said before, the intercessory prayer of Jesus for us while he is seated in the right hand of the Father, even though we have the Holy Spirit, we need the prayers of Jesus for us even now. Number three. Now we get to, we saw the who he's praying for and why he's praying. Now here's the bulk of it. What Jesus is praying for. 
If you are in Christ, know this. Jesus is praying for you. And first of all, he is praying for your protection while in the world. Your protection in the world. The second half of verse 11, Jesus says, Holy Father, keep them in your name. It's interesting. That's, that's the, only term, the only place I think we see in the Bible. Holy Father. Holy Father. And I've heard, is this true? I've heard that Catholics pray, like refer to the Pope as Holy Father. And yet in the only time we ever see in the scripture the Holy Father is being used, it's being used on the lips of Jesus for, uh, for God the Father in heaven. And he says, keep them, or some translations might have guard them, protect them while they're in the world. And he has a couple of things he wants their protection for. First of all, he's praying for our protection against disunity. Our protection against disunity. Notice chapter, uh, verse uh, 11, the rest of verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one. The unity of Christians is something that Jesus is praying for. But notice this. I, th I think it's very common to hear the importance of unity among believers. And I think a lot of people talk about unity among the believers. And sometimes we'll even say, here's why you should have unity among believers. Don't debate and argue about, you know, doctrine or things like that. Um, let's just all get along. I totally agree. We totally should agree. But notice what the foundation of the unity is that Jesus himself prays for, right? Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. The relationship between God the Father and God the Son, the unity that they have is the model for the unity that the believers are to have. Okay? That's important. Got to understand the relationship between the Father and the Son. Notice the essential in their essence, the oneness between the Father and the Son. Now, notice as well, they're not the same person. Okay? There's different persons. This is an understanding of the Trinity that each of the persons of the Trinity are different, distinct persons, and yet they are one. There's just one God, and they, have, they share the same essence, okay? It's not, um, not multiple persons, and it's not just one, uh, one, not multiple gods, and it's not just one person who just shows up in different ways. No, that's modalism. That's modalism, Patrick, right? So the Orthodox doctrine says they're, they're one in essence, but they have different uh, persons or substances. And that's an important thing to think about. At the level of essence or being, God is one. And everything that could be said about God applies equally to all three persons without distinction. But at another level of the personhood or identity, God uh, is three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So why is that important? Because they have this fundamental union, but they're different, different persons. So too, we are different persons, and yet we share a deeper unity through our identity through Christ. So in other words, it's a unity that is grounded on truth. To suggest that there should be unity without agreement 
in first order doctrinal matters is not biblical unity. It's an artificial unity. It's, not, it's an unchristian unity. It's not even a Christian unity. That's not the unity that Jesus is praying for here if he grounds it even as we are one. Unity without agreement in major doctrinal matters is not unity. And I can guarantee you, 100% guarantee you, that the Father and the Son are 100% in agreement about truth. 100%. And that really forms the basis for our unity as well. Unity apart from truth is not unity. Now, that doesn't mean that every single minor matter, every, you know, every point of doctrine that, you know, we can't have disagreement in those matters. Of course, there are things, and Scripture even acknowledges this, there are things that are called debatable matters or differences of opinion. Romans chapter 13 and 14 is a great example of that. You know, and he gives in particular example like foods. So, so check that out. You can see there are debatable matters. We can even say, you know, the particulars of some doctrines, like, you know, when is Christ coming and what, you know, those kinds of things. Now, I believe that scripture teaches in one particular direction, but I would consider believers, genuine believers, brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ that would disagree on some of those minor things. But on the major things, first order doctrines, we absolutely have to have agreement. Trinity. The revelation of God, the nature of scripture, the nature of Christ, the nature of man is a first order doctrine. The nature of salvation, the nature of the atonement, justification, sanctification, etc. All of those things. We have to be in agreement, in unity on those things. Jesus says, which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. So no fake, uh, no fake unity. When, when we first, first moved here, I remember somebody had said something about, they called it Michigan nice. Have you ever heard this before? Maybe it was something they made up. Michigan nice. And especially like kind of the church community, we're just kind of like all agree to get along and those kind of things. And it just kind of always stuck with me. And I, yet I see that there's this kind of attempt to say, let's just have a unity apart from, you know, doctrinal matters that really, really matter. No, Jesus is praying for true, genuine unity and grounded in the essential relationship between the Father and Son. That becomes the, the, the example for us. Now, this unity um, was established among the disciples with one notable exception. Notice verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the Son of Destruction, that the Scripture might be Fulfilled. Here's is a reference to Judas Iscariot and his betrayal of Jesus, where he abandons the meal in John chapter 13. More on him later, Lord willing. So Jesus is praying for our protection against disunity, and now Jesus continues to pray for our protection against worldliness. For our protection against worldliness in verses 13 and 14. But now, Jesus says, now I am coming to you, to the Father, and these things I speak in the world that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. 
and I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, a reminder, remember, the world here is not referring to the planet or the universe. and you know, It's referring to lost mankind in rebellion against God. Also a reminder that we saw several weeks ago where Jesus had warned them over, and, again, and you're, the world's going to hate you. But know that it hated me first, but they're going to hate you. But notice here, as Jesus is praying for these things, he's saying that Christ does not wish that believing people are to be taken out of the world, but, that, uh, but to be in the world and to be kept from the evil of the world. Kind of That's a clumsy way of saying what we've probably heard before, that we should be in the world, but not of the world. That's what Jesus is getting at here. But notice he doesn't extract people from the world once they're his people. He doesn't extract them from the world once they've been given to him as a gift from the Father and he gives them the gift of eternal life. And he says, okay, now you're gone. No, he says, I'm the one that's leaving. You're the one that's staying. And so with that in mind, he now prays, Father, they're still in the world. And they need protection from worldliness, from worldliness. Also, notice this, the, connect, the, the worldliness, protection from worldliness should be, uh, is directly connected to our joy in the world. I'm coming to use these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So Jesus is pr praying for their protection against worldliness, which should be the source of uh, source of our receiving of his joy. And then uh, lastly for this one, he prays for the protection against the evil one, verses 15 and 16. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. He repeats that again. And, and this echoes, there's a lot of echoes here. Uh, remember, we've uh, we've often referred to the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We refer to that as the Lord's Prayer. And last week I said, this is, this is actually the Lord's Prayer because this is the Lord's Prayer for us on our behalf. That's more should be like the disciples' prayer. But there, notice the similarities. Have you, have you kind of caught that? There's the, the Our Father and Jesus prays, Holy Father. There is this uh, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, and Jesus is saying, glorify your son, because you remember the son of God was the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So there's a little bit of thematic parallels here. And then uh, the protection, uh, keep them, guard them from temptation, those sorts of things. And notice how that prayer ends um, uh, in Matthew chapter 6, uh, and deliver them from the evil one. Or deliver them from evil, as some translations will say, but it's the, the evil one. Jesus is imitating that here. Of course, the evil one is Satan, the one who is prowling around the earth like a, a lion looking for some people to devour. Jesus, know that when that is happening, you're, you're feeling the attack of the evil one and that you're being devoured by him. Know that you, you can sustain because you have Jesus Christ interceding for you. For your protection so seek him seek him out so that's all under the protection category jesus is praying for their protection but he's also praying for their sanctification 
Those verses 17 through 19. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, there's a couple usages of the word, uh, the Greek word here, the verb and the noun for sanctification, which means to, to set apart as sacred to God or as holy, set apart. So um, hagiazo is the verb. Hagiasmas is the, is the noun, uh, which means consecration or sanctification. Sanctification is the ongoing work of God to bring us to greater holiness and obedience. This is an expectation for every believer. It's the work of God in us to bring us to greater levels of holiness and obedience. Hear me? It's different from justification. Justification is the declaration that we are righteous before God. We have been imputed Christ's righteousness and we have now right standing before God. We have justification in his presence. But sanctification is what comes as a result of that. Great scripture verse for this that kind of illustrates this. Hebrews chapter 10, speaking of the offering of Jesus Christ. For by a single offering, he has perfected, and you could say this kind of a little bit synonymous with um, completed and you know synonymous with justification for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified okay the ongoing nature of the sanctification process so that's what Jesus is praying for here three things uh, how well first he says how is by the truth of God's message Sanctify them in the truth. In here is, not getting too technical, in here is instrumental. Okay, what does that mean? Well, the, what is about to be said is the instrument to accomplish what was just said. Sanctify them in the truth. You could translate it. Some, maybe some translations do have this. Sanctify them by the truth. It's the thing which is going to accomplish the first thing. What's the instrument of our sanctification? The truth. 2 Thessalonians 2.13. We ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved of the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Or 1 Peter chapter 1, 22. Having purified your souls, synonym here for sanctification, by your obedience to the truth. Notice the relationship between sanctification and truth. Where do we find this truth? Jesus tells us, your word is truth. Your word is truth. So in other words, be in the word. What is meant by the word here? Is it the message of the gospel? Uh, it could be. Is he talking to, about the scriptures? Uh, I think so. I think that that's what he's getting at. And how do you really separate them out? You know, in so how are you sanctified, growing in your sanctification? It's through the word. It's through the truth, and his word is truth. So in other words, 
Your sanctification is connected to being in the word, being in the scriptures, reading the word or listening to the word. If you have an audio app, you can listen to the scriptures. It's by studying his, his word, listening to sermons that exposit the word. Hopefully, as we do here every Sunday. Here's a prediction. If you are struggling in your sanctification, odds are, odds are you're not regularly in the word. And I, I don't need any insider knowledge or insider information to say that. I think that this is a truth that can be known all throughout the scripture. If you're struggling in your sanctification, odds are you are not regularly in the word. So my encouragement to you is be in the word. Jesus is praying for you to be in the word. He's praying for you to be sanctified by the truth. And his word is truth. So that's the how of our sanctification. Now, the why of our sanctification. Notice this in verse 18. Why? Well, it's for our mission in the world. Jesus was on a mission. He was sent into the world. We saw this all throughout John's gospel. And he says this in his prayer, verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So why do we need to be sanctified? Because we need to be, um, when the world sees believers, it's often said that sometimes the people won't read a Bible, but they will read Christians. Now, whether that's fair or true or right, or whether that's a means by which they could actually come to know us, like they're really going to come to believe through the word of God and the spirit of God. They're not going to come to believe just merely on the life of Christians alone. But the life of Christians matters. It matters. And so Jesus is praying. Why is he praying for them to be sanctified? It's because he's leaving. And they need to be sanctified because he is now sending us into the world. And lastly, Jesus prays for your sanctification. The, the who is our example here. And that is Jesus himself. Notice that Jesus consecrated himself. He's asking, and this is the same word for, um, for holy. The, you know, this is the hagiasmas. This is connected to uh, sanctify. I know it says sanctify there in English and then consecrated here. But it's this, the, same, the same word. Family. And for your sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in the truth. We are to sanctify ourselves and set ourselves apart because that's what Jesus did. He set himself apart, and in particular, he set himself apart to do his Father's will. Brothers and sisters, likewise, we are called, and as Jesus' prayer tells us here, we are called to, be, to set ourselves apart to do the Father's will, to follow our Savior. Have you consecrated yourself to doing his will? This is what Jesus is praying for you. I love this passage because it's a picture of the intercessory ministry of Jesus. 
my early Christian life, I, I loved Jesus because of what he taught and how he lived. I came to love him more when I realized what he had done for my salvation in suffering and dying. But it was sometime later that I really came to understand that his ministry didn't end there, that it's ongoing now through his intercession for us as his people at the right hand of the Father. And what an encouraging thing that is for us to have here Jesus' high priestly prayer for his people. Speaking of high priestly prayer, uh, Wilhelmus Abrakel uses a great picture for this intercessory work of Jesus. And he's connecting this to, speaking of high priestly prayer, he's connecting this to what would happen uh, when the Israelites would come to the high priest to offer their sacrifices. He points out a couple of things. I won't read the whole thing here, but he says, in order to do this, in order to go to the high priest to make intercession for him and... Um, to, to give the sacrifice and then to intercede on our behalf before God the Father, God the presence of Yahweh there in the temple, a couple things must happen. He says, first, he had to know his sins and the heaviness of the burden of his guilt. And then he said he should uh, kind of abhor, that, abhor and hate that part of him and acknowledge that God's wrath and hatred against that sin and that the only way that this could be removed was by the sacrifice, the blood atonement shed. He goes on to kind of describe, kind of walk through in a picture what it would have been like for an Israelite to come uh, according to what is given for us in Leviticus, that the, the sinner was to come to take this, this lamb or this offering of whatever kind and bring it to the high priest as a sacrifice with the appropriate contrition. And then the uh, high priest would lay his hands on the animal, kind of symbolically casting the sins on that sacrifice. And all of this is picturing the Messiah that was to come. And then the priest goes and now slaughters this animal, takes the blood, sprinkles it in, in the appropriate places, and goes into the... Uh, the Holy of Holies in the highest day of the year, acknowledging the sin of all of the people. And that the people are outside as the high priest is making this intercession, pleading on behalf of God the Father for them. And I'll read here. As the sinner in the Old Testament would stay near the sacrifice to witness the sacrifice of that animal on his behalf, such a sinner must likewise Focus upon Christ and behold him in his suffering and death. Considering his sacrifice to have been offered on his behalf. And as the sinner in the Old Testament on the basis of that sacrifice obtained ceremonial reconciliation and to true reconciliation. If he believed in the Messiah, one must likewise apply Christ to himself as his atoning sacrifice for reconciliation and peace. He connects the intercessory work of Jesus with that picture of offering the sacrifice. Well, Jesus gave us a meal. 
By the way, remember in Leviticus, they would have the fellowship meal afterward. Because once it had been accomplished for them, the high priest would come out and then they would uh, roast the meat and they would have a fellowship offering and they would make the cakes. You remember? It was a fellowship meal. Why? Because peace has been restored. Christ is interceding for us on our behalf, having accomplished this work of sanctification, and peace has been restored, and we actually get to kind of have that pictured for us in this meal that he has given us to remind us of the work that he has done for us and the gospel that we now receive. Amen? So let us stand together as I pray, and if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you're welcome to come and to partake of this meal that Jesus gave us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we give you all thanks and praise. All glory and honor be to you for sending your Son to be our atoning sacrifice, to be our great High Priest who is even now interceding on our behalf. We give you thanks for his work on the cross, but also his work interceding for us. And now, Father, we thank you for this meal that you've given us, that, that your son Jesus gave to those disciples on the night that he was betrayed, that we could take this and be nourished with the truth that this meal conveys, that we are nourished and refreshed by this this gospel, the good news that we are reconciled to, with you. And so we give you thanks for these. Grateful that we could take it together as your people, whom you've given as a gift to your son, and who has given us the gift of eternal life. And it is with much gratitude that we give you thanks and praise. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.